0: Chapter One, Section Ten, of the Greek View of Life, by Goldsworthy Lowes Dickinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Chapter One, Section Ten, Mysticism. But there is nothing so misleading as generalization especially on the subject of the greeks again and again when we think we have laid hold of their characteristic view we are confronted with some new aspect of their life which we cannot fit into harmony with our scheme there is no formula which will sum up that versatile and many-sided people and so in the case before us we have no sooner made what appears to be the safe and comprehensive statement that the greeks conceived the relation of man to the gods mechanically than we are reminded of quite another phase of their religion different from and even antithetic to that with which we have hitherto been concerned nothing we might be inclined to say on the basis of what we have at present ascertained nothing could be more opposed to the clear anthropomorphic vision of the greek than that conception of a mystic exaltation so constantly occurring in the history of religion whose aim is to transcend the limits of human personality and pass into direct communion with the divine life yet of some such conception and of the ritual devised under its influence we have undoubted though fragmentary indications in the civilization of the greeks it is mainly in connection with the two gods apollo and dionysus that the phenomena in question occur gods whose cult was introduced comparatively late into greece and who brought with them from the north something of its formless but pregnant mystery as though at a point the chain of guardian deities was broken and the terror and forces of the abyss pressed in upon the charmed circle of Hellas. For Apollo, who in one of his aspects is a figure so typically Hellenic, the ever young and beautiful god of music and the arts, was also the power of prophetic inspiration, of ecstasy, or passing out of one's self the priestess who delivered his oracle at delphi was possessed and mastered by the god maddened by mephitic vapours streaming from a cleft in the rock convulsed in every feature and every limb she delivered in semi-articulate cries the burden of the divine message her own personality for the time being was annihilated. The wall that parts man from God was swept away, and the divine rushed in upon the human vessel it shattered as it filled. This conception of inspiration as a higher form of madness, possessed of a truer insight than that of sanity, was fully recognized among the Greeks. There is a madness, as Plato puts it, which is the special gift of heaven, and the source of the chiefest blessings among men. For prophecy is a madness, and the prophetess at Delphi and the priestesses at Dodona, when out of their senses, have conferred great benefits on Hellas, both in public and private life but when in their senses few or none and in proportion as prophecy is higher and more perfect than divination both in name and reality in the same proportion as the ancients testify is madness superior to a sane mind for the one is only of human but the other of divine origin here then in the oracle at delphi the centre of the religious life of the greeks we have an explicit affirmation of that element of mysticism which we might have supposed to be the most alien to their genius and the same element reappears in a cruder and more barbaric form in connection with the cult of dionysus he the god of wine was also the god of inspiration and the ritual with which he was worshipped was a kind of apotheosis of intoxication to suppress for a time the ordinary workaday consciousness with its tedium its checks its balancing of pros and cons to escape into the directness and simplicity of mere animal life, and yet to feel in this no degradation, but rather a submission to the divine power, an actual identification with the deity. Such, it would seem, was the intention of those extraordinary revels of which we have in the bacchae of euripides so vivid a description and to this end no stimulus was omitted to excite and inspire the imagination and the sense the influence of night and torches in solitary woods intoxicating drinks the din of flutes and cymbals on a base of thunderous drums dances convulsing every limb and dazzling eyes and brain the harking back as it were to the sympathies and forms of animal life in the dress of fawn-skin the horns the snakes twined about the arm and the impersonation of those strange half-human creatures who were supposed to attend upon the god the satyrs nymphs and fauns who formed his train all this points to an attempt to escape from the bounds of ordinary consciousness and pass into some condition conceived, however confusedly, as one of union with the divine power. And though the basis, clearly enough, is physical and even bestial, yet the whole ritual does undoubtedly express, and that with a plastic grace and beauty that redeems its frank sensuality, that passion to transcend the limitations of human existence which is at the bottom of the mystic element in all religions but this orgy of the senses was not the only form which the worship of dionysus took in greece in connection with one of his legends the myth of dionysus zagreus we find traces of an esoteric doctrine, taught by what were known as the Orphic sects, very curiously opposed, one would have said, to the general trend of Greek conceptions. According to the story, Zagreus was the son of Zeus and Persephone. Hera, in her jealousy, sent the Titans to destroy him, After a struggle they managed to kill him, cut him up, and devoured all but the heart, which was saved by Athene, and carried to Zeus. Zeus swallowed it, and produced therefrom a second Dionysus. The titans he destroyed by lightning, and from their ashes created man man is thus composed of two elements, one bad, the titanic, the other good, the dionysiac, the latter being derived from the body of Dionysus, which the titans had devoured. This fundamental dualism, according to the doctrine founded on the myth, is the perpetual tragedy of man's existence and his perpetual struggle is to purify himself of the titanic element. The process extends over many incarnations, but an ultimate deliverance is promised by the aid of the Redeemer, Dionysus Lucius. The belief thus briefly described was not part of the popular religion of the Greeks, but it was a normal growth of their consciousness, and it is mentioned here as a further indication that even in what we call the classical age there were not wanting traces of the more mystic and spiritual side of religion. Here in the tenets of these Orphic sects we have the doctrine of original sin, The conception of life as a struggle between two opposing principles and the promise of an ultimate redemption by the help of the divine power and if this be taken in connection with the universal and popular belief in inspiration as possession by the god we shall see that our original statement that the relation of man to the gods was mechanical and external in the Greek conception must at least be so far modified that it must be taken only as an expression of the central or dominant point of view, not as excluding other and even contradictory standpoints. Still, broadly speaking, and admitting the limitations, statement may stand. If the Greek popular religion be compared with that of the Christian world, the great distinction certainly emerges that in the one the relation of God to man is conceived as mechanical and external, in the other as inward and spiritual. The point has been sufficiently illustrated and we may turn to another division of our subject End of chapter one section ten recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey